0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Hello, I'm Nitin Seem. Thanks for joining us for today's Out of the Blue podcast. I'm excited to bring you a podcast today about a topic uh, that's very important, uh, and we have a clinical practice guideline regarding this topic, mechanical ventilation in ARDS, that was published online in the May 1st American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I'm joined today by the co-chair of the Clinical Practice Guideline Committee, Dr. Eddie Fan, who is an associate professor in the Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine, and the Institute of Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. So Eddie, thank you for joining me and taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to talk about this important guideline.
0: Thank you, Nitin. It's my pleasure to be here. Great.
1: So I I wanted to set set the stage. Excuse me. I know you spent several years of your life working on this. So uh, could you tell us just in general terms uh, how your committee selected the six questions that you addressed in the clinical practice guideline?
0: Sure. We, um, we used a process that was pretty open. Uh, we wanted to select a number of questions that we thought were of greatest cl- clinical relevance to practitioners uh, caring for patients with ARDS, uh, recognizing that there were many important questions to answer and many interventions that could be uh, addressed in such a guideline. Uh, for reasons uh, of resources, timing, and just pragmatism, uh, we elected to uh, first agree on the number of questions we thought we could tackle in a guideline, and we framed that as six. Uh, and in the end, we selected the six uh, questions from the available guidelines focusing on those interventions that were mainly related to manipulations of the ventilator and their settings. Uh, hence, the guideline is focused on mechanical ventilation in these patients, excluding interventions which are mainly adjunctives, such as inhaled vasodilators, vasodilators. Um, uh, steroids, neuromuscular blockade, which are also important questions, but maybe the uh, focus of a future guideline, and then choosing a few um, interventions which may not be ventilatory in nature per se, but were extremely uh, topical in the community, such as uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation.
1: Well, I, if I may, I'd say you guys uh, did a, uh, an excellent job of tackling sort of feasible questions to answer before it became too overwhelming. Uh I would like to ask you then a little bit about process. I know this has taken a great deal of time and meticulous attention um, to producing this clinical practice guideline. And I'd like you to sort of, uh, if you could describe for our listeners the process by which uh, you sought to answer each of these questions.
0: Sure. Um, So uh, I think the importance of... uh, drafting any clinical practice guidelines is in using relatively rigorous methodology uh, to arrive at the recommendations that are ultimately uh, the end result of this process. Uh, We were fortunate to use a pretty established uh, uh, guideline methodology called the GRADE process, which is the standard for ATS uh, guidelines. And uh, again, fortunate that within our panel, we had many uh, GRADE or methodology experts help guide us through this process. And in a nutshell, it basically is a way of systematically obtaining all the high quality evidence that's available for the questions that we have to answer. We typically formulate these questions in the the PICO format, so the Population Intervention Control Outcomes uh, format, Uh, gather systematically again the evidence that's available for each of the questions uh, in the guideline with the help of a medical librarian and information specialists. Uh, And then we divided our panel uh, into three, broadly speaking, three groups to tackle two questions each um, and to digest the available data uh, in a meta-analysis with pre-planned secondary analyses and then using that data and the grade process to create an evidence to recommendation framework, um, drafted those recommendations, and then through iterative circulation and feedback on those recommendations ultimately came up with the uh, six uh, clinical recommendations that you see uh, in the published guideline. Uh, I might just add that there was quite a bit of discussion about a number of them, which you may see and we may discuss further in the podcast, where uh, consensus was a little bit more challenging to obtain, but lots of good discussion about where the data is strong and obviously in areas where the data may be uh, less uh, robust and uh, more uh, controversy arising.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure I can speak for our listeners in saying that uh, we appreciate you spending uh, the last several years figuring this out and, and uh, you know uh, putting all the data together the best you could um, in, in such a challenging uh, um, but very important topic. So let's get into uh, those six questions that the clinical practice guideline uh, sought to answer. The first one, Uh, was a strong recommendation for mechanical ventilation using lower tidal volumes. And I'll note you put a range of four to eight milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight and lower inspiratory pressures with the plateau pressure less than 30 centimeters of water. So if you could take us through how you came up with this conclusion.
0: Sure. So, um... As we mentioned, the process uh, for all these questions was similar. We updated actually a recent high-quality systematic review and meta-analysis on uh, low-volume, low-pressure ventilation in ARDS patients um, to obtain the best up-to-date evidence to inform this recommendation. Um, Interestingly, our systematic review and meta-analysis did not find a significant difference in mortality, which was the primary outcome for all our um, meta-analyses. Uh, for the use of low tidal volume and low pressure uh, ventilation in patients with ARDS. But upon further evaluation, the boundary of the confidence interval that we found for this effect um, was consistent with a plausible effect that suggested that a lung protective strategy using low tidal volumes and low pressures could reduce the risk of death by as much as a third, about 30%. And then a number of pre-planned secondary analyses, uh, including some sensitivity analyses and a meta-regression of all included trials. uh, These also supported a clinically important benefit for lung protective ventilation. Um, Probably most importantly, our meta-regression supported a dose-response relationship between tidal volume and mortality, again, supporting, uh, or better supporting, the idea of a causal relationship between tidal volumes Uh, and mortality. And then finally, the panel discussed at length, although maybe not formally uh, considered, the fact that there's an increasing amount of evidence from areas outside of ARDS, sort of in the perioperative literature in patients who are at risk but don't have ARDS, um, data showing that lower tidal volume ventilation seems to be um, efficacious in those patient groups as well. So in taking the totality of the data, suggesting a uh, plausible effect or benefit of low tidal volume ventilation led the panel to uh, submit a strong recommendation for its use in patients with ARDS.
1: I think that was a really interesting point uh, that you led off with, and I really appreciate you providing that. The fact that the primary analysis showed um, no significant difference in in mortality when you put all the trials together—you know—certainly all of us. Um, commit to memory the ARMA trial showing a reduction in mortality um, from 40 to 31% with 6 cc's per kilo predicted body weight versus 12, but I think it is important to note that that primary analysis um, uh, and, and the reasons still why you, you gave the strong recommendation. Um, and I think uh, another point that, you know, certainly when we're teaching fellows and stuff, we note that sometimes people get sort of 6 cc's per kilo. Um, Tattooed to their brain, and you'll see patients double triggering, and you know certainly those patients are at, uh, at higher risk for uh, volume trauma, microbaro trauma. So I think your group providing a range of tidal volumes um, was very important and helpful, um, and certainly I, I think uh, from from uh, the guideline, it seems that an, impor- an important area of future research uh, should consider. Um, individualizing low tidal volumes for one person uh, for maybe better uh, and than and as opposed to another who may uh, need uh, a higher tidal volume. Uh, and how do you individualize that low tidal volume, low inspiratory pressure strategy? So obviously you've done a very exhaustive review of this topic. Um, do you have an opinion on what would be a, a high yield area of focus as we try to? improve this recommendation even more?
0: I think um, perhaps before we even move to um, future studies of how we might um, focus uh, on individualizing mechanical ventilation further is to say that, as you mentioned, the starting point for these patients should be the recognition that they have ARDS, um, the acknowledgement that lung protective ventilation with lower tidal volumes and plateau pressures uh, can lead to a mortality benefit uh, and then applying that strategy uh, with the range of tidal volumes that we provided, which again is translated from the available uh, data uh, to these patients so that they could um, receive that uh, benefit and to protect their lungs and uh, have a better clinical outcome. I think the most compelling thing is is that the recent data from the Lung Safe study that was published in JAMA earlier this year shows that we're still stu- doing poorly at identifying patients with ARDS and therefore applying um, these lung protective strategies to them and that up to a third of patients um, may not who qualify may not be receiving uh, lung protective ventilation as per this recommendation. So perhaps the first order of business is for us um, to perhaps focus less on future research and to focus more on quality improvement and implementation strategies to help better recognize, reduce barriers to the application of Lung protective ventilation um, as a starting point.
1: I, I think that's a great point, Eddie. Sorry, um, you know, I, I think you know I'm you're interpreting data from clinical trials. I'm talking about clinical trials, but in the real world, there are a significant portion of uh, of patients who aren't receiving lung protective uh, mechanical ventilation.
0: So, so thank you for pointing that out. Sure, and I think you know, moving forward from there. Um, as you said, perhaps the new, the future uh, is the idea of individualizing treatment, sort of a personalized medicine uh, way of providing mechanical ventilation. And I think our understanding of um, respiratory physiology, uh, ARDS, and, and the interface with mechanical ventilation is growing steadily. And we have better tools at the bedside now to monitor the effects of mechanical ventilation in these sick patients. And perhaps the future, um, what the future may hold for individualizing mechanical ventilation strategies in these patients relies on better use of monitoring at the bedside during mechanical ventilation. So perhaps enhanced uptake and use of things like esophageal pressure monitoring, non-invasive methods such as lung ultrasound or electrical impedance tomography might help us to better understand how to change and set mechanical ventilation in these patients and certainly what their effects on the injured lung may be. And, um, and along those lines perhaps future targets, um, novel targets other than tidal volume and plateau pressure may be more important in, uh, in uh, protecting the injured lung in these patients. Um, as the listeners are probably aware there's a lot of um, enthusiasm currently for the idea of driving pressure uh, following this uh, important and high profile publication by Marcelo Amato in the New England Journal suggesting that driving pressure may be a more important target than tidal volume or plateau pressure in these patients. We still need to see data whether a strategy targeting a reduction in driving pressure is superior to current lung protective strategies, but that, that might be a very interesting and important avenue for future research.
1: Well, I, th- I think that's a, those are great points. And I think that the challenge is always you know what you mentioned initially if um, how do you operationalize something that you can do easily at the bedside and clearly even with picking a number which should be relatively easy based on a milliliters per kilo predicted body weight there are a significant uh, percentage of patients who aren't receiving that so when we try to do something more um, more complex in real time in ARDS you um, would we would the, obviously, the, 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 the goal, the aspiration would be to personalize care and target that baby lung or um, however you, you want to describe it. But can you do that in real time, and, and certainly we're not there yet. So I think that's why something like a driving pressure that is easier to, to calculate, it, hopefully that will show promise uh, in further study. I, want, I wanted to next move on to your second recommendation. That was another uh, strong recommendation. Um, the The next question uh, your committee addressed was related to prone positioning. So you made a strong recommendation for prone positioning greater than 12 hours per day in severe ARDS. And obviously, you look at all the data, um, but I did want to point out this is slightly different um, than the protocol, than, than the patients in the Proceva trial, which found that profound 17% 28 and 90 day mortality reduction with 16 hours per day of proning enrolling patients with a P to F ratio of less than 150. So I was hoping you could take us through how the committee uh, came up with 12 hours per day in severe
0: ARDS. Sure. Um, I would say this was one of the more challenging uh, recommendations the panel uh, had to deal with amongst the six uh, questions that we considered, um, particularly in the um, aftermath of this landmark trial, the PROSIVA trial that you mentioned. Um, We chose 12 hours a priori as a way to stratify all the available data. And again, so we weren't focused um, exclusively on the PROSIVA study, but looking at the Um, all the available uh, clinical trials to date, looking at prone positioning in patients with ARDS. And as had been done in previous systematic reviews and meta-analysis, we needed some threshold to uh, stratify studies into those with shorter duration, which is typically characterized by the older studies in prone positioning, um, and longer duration prone studies, which are the more recent uh, group of studies, to understand the difference between shorter and longer duration proning. Um, and we wanted to choose a threshold, again, that would allow reasonable separation of these studies so that uh, depending on the, at the um, cut point that you pick, you might imagine that you might have a very unbalanced number of studies in either group. So we wanted to pick one that would allow um, good separation between relevant studies to be included in each of these subgroups. Uh, but certainly, again, as, as we've seen, as the field has progressed, um, randomized control trials in proning uh, culminating in Proceba have certainly over time targeted sicker and sicker patients, uh, building on the knowledge of prior randomized studies, and, uh, and subjected those patients in the prone group to longer durations of proning. But basically, we chose that cutoff, um, again, to, to have a balance of studies in shorter versus longer duration proning and modeled that somewhat on previous systematic reviews and meta-analyses that had used this uh, duration as a threshold.
1: So I wanted to follow up on that a little bit. You know, I see uh, uh, many centers have protocols for the management of hypoxemic respiratory failure or ARDS. And uh, you'll see centers will initiate prone positioning based on the PDF of less than 150 used in PROSIVA. And obviously the, the challenge is that you want to do it Early in the course of ARDS, so um, the recommend the strong recommendation was was made, and, and th- you clarified why for severe ARDS. Um, do you have any personal thoughts about what to do with patients with moderate ARDS, and um, and what are the gaps in knowledge there if, if you don't have a clear recommendation at this point?
0: Thanks. then yeah, this was a this was the area I think of greatest controversy for the panel. Um something that maybe isn't uh, more explicitly communicated in the guideline, we had a lot of discussion about the use of proning in moderate, uh, patients with moderate ARDS um, and along the lines of this cutoff of a PF ratio of 150 that's been used in Proceba as well as a number of other studies of intra- interventions in ARDS. Um, So, you know, along with our updated systematic review and meta-analysis where we actually grouped patients a priori into moderate-severe versus mild, we clearly saw there was a difference between uh, a benefit in moderate-severe with uh, no significant benefit in mild, but it wasn't as easy to parse out the differences between moderate ARDS and severe ARDS, uh, mostly because there were not many trials that enrolled a good number of moderate ARDS patients. This is evidenced by the fact of uh, a patient-level meta-analysis of four earlier randomized control trials that didn't include PROSIVA because it was done a number of years ago that also demonstrated a mortality benefit concentrated in patients with severe ARDS at baseline. Um, and this result, again, as you mentioned, was confirmed in the PROSIVA trial. And it's important to note that although the inclusion criteria for proceva allowed patients with a PF ratio less than 150 to be enrolled, At baseline, in the group that received proning and Proceva, their mean baseline PF ratio was actually 100, uh, with a a standard deviation of 30 millimeters of mercury. So on average, the patients were more severe than moderate. um, And again, this trial confirmed the result, at least of a mortality benefit in this prior patient-level meta-analysis. So given these data uh, and thinking about the patients that were actually included in the Proceva study, and balancing that with the understanding that proning is actually associated with higher rates of complications such as endotracheal tube ins- obstruction and pressure sores, the panel was um, reticent to issue um, a strong recommendation and wanted to be conservative regarding recommendations for proning in patients with moderate ARDS until more data were available.
1: That's fair enough. and and. You know, obviously, uh, some more context there. You guys are, <clears throat> excuse me, looking through data from for many years, and uh, these studies were done before the the Berlin definition, where you have the clear, you know, mild, moderate, severe, um, and so um, when you have a 150, you're with moderate and severe, so it, it makes a major task even more challenging. So I guess. The take-home message would be fair to say we, we need more data in the moderate group uh, in terms of um, duration of proning and outcome before we can before a, um, a strong recommendation can be made
0: yes i think uh, we would agree uh, with that statement and that was the end result of the discussions that we had uh, amongst the guideline panel
1: that's fair enough uh, and again you're you're doing a lot of uh, hard work uh, so so many of us don't have to um, so I, I wanted to move on to, uh, your third recommendation, um, and it was your last strong recommendation, but this was a strong recommendation against, uh, the routine use of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in adults with either moderate or severe ARDS. So, again, if you could take us through your thought process there for that strong Recommendation against high-frequency oscillatory
0: ventilation. Sure. Um, so again, you know, looking at our own updated systematic review and meta-analysis, there was actually no significant difference in mortality between high-frequency oscillation and control groups. Um, however, uh, once again, we considered strongly the evidence from the two most recent large multi-center randomized control trials that evaluated high-frequency oscillation in patients with moderate and severe ARDS, since those were the had the biggest weight in the systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, and so, as the listeners are likely aware, the Oscillate study um, actually reported significantly higher mortality, or harm, with HFO. Um, and the OSCAR study, which is more of a pragmatic randomized control trial from the UK, showed no benefit. Um, And so, considering taking those two recent large uh, randomized control trials into consideration, um, one suggesting no benefit and one suggesting potential harm, it didn't seem that there would be a signal or a need for a recommendation to consider high-frequency oscillation early uh, for the routine management, ventilatory management of patients with moderate to severe ARDS, and that's what led to our um, recommendation. I might just add as a caveat that, again, based on these two large randomized control trials, our recommendation is targeted against the routine use of high-frequency oscillation in these patients with moderate or severe ARDS. And both these trials tried to apply high-frequency oscillation early. High-frequency oscillation may still have a role in patients with severe ARDS. And again, the control group in the oscillate study allowed patients with refractory hypoxemia to cross over to HFO as a rescue strategy, about 11% of those patients did. And the overall mortality in that group was lower than the HFO group. So um, the recommendation is against uh, the routine early use of high-frequency oscillation in these types of patients. Oh,
1: thank you for that important clarification. Obviously, that is different than rescue therapy. Um, and I just wanted to follow up on, uh, about this. Um, obviously, I think you had a, a structure to sort of talk about future research opportunities about um, each of the modalities in the six questions. Um, I wonder if you see any signal there. The way I I look at it personally is there is no benefit of harm. And and as you mentioned in the the one large trial, there was um, a signal of harm um, with high frequency oscillatory ventilation, uh, the routine use in, in early ARDS. Um, and obviously, as we've already talked about in the first two questions, there are still several important areas um, of research in terms of individualizing care and, and further clarifying um, the appropriate treatment that require further study. And clearly uh, research funds are, are not growing at the rate any of us would like uh, like that to, to be to occur. So, ask you, hopefully it's not an unfair question, uh, and ask your personal opinion, uh, but is it time to move on compre- completely from studying high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in the routine use of ARDS as opposed to, to rescue therapy?
0: Well, I think uh, like many things, this is a challenging question. Um, and I think your point is well taken Nitin, that I think, uh, you know, the current climate of, of research funding leads uh, many investigators um, to focus carefully on uh, questions and interventions that they think have the best chances of, um, uh, of being answered and, and showing uh, hopefully a benefit for, for the patients that, uh, that we treat. I think for certain along those lines, you know, additional large clinical trials um, at this point evaluating, evaluating high-frequency oscillation in a similar manner or similar protocol to what was used in Oscillator OSCAR uh, would not be meaningful, would likely lead to very similar results. Um, I think we're compelled though by all the experimental data um, and the physiologic rationale that high frequency oscillation should represent a very lung protective way to ventilate these patients. So along the lines of our first recommendation we know that low tidal volume is a very good strategy for these patients and high frequency delivers very low tidal volumes at a very constant distending pressure. So. I think any future research on HFO um, in adults needs to go back to the drawing board. You need to start again with some maybe experimental and pilot physiologic data suggesting how better to apply high frequency in these patients and maybe considering better patient selection, so targeting those that might be recruitable uh, and respond to high frequency oscillation uh, and or those that apply novel protocols for how to set high-frequency oscillation. So again, the idea that maybe individualized setting using something like esophageal pressure or transpulmonary pressure to safe, more safely apply high mean airway pressures may um, be a starting point uh, for a future protocol for high-frequency oscillation uh, in these patients. But I completely agree that jumping to another large clinical trial at this point uh, would not be warranted.
1: I, I think that was a very... Uh way to express that and uh, looking for a phenotype of patients who may benefit maybe a more appropriate way if there is any way to resurrect um, a future study uh, of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in routine care. And and certainly in the past in critical care, we've seen uh, things get resurrected, therapies get resurrected for future use that turned out to be uh, beneficial. Um, So I uh, I want to leave now our listeners with a, a sort of a cliffhanger. We've gone through the first three questions um, that Dr. Fan and his colleagues uh, answered in the clinical practice guideline on mechanical ventilation in adults with ARDS. We have three more questions to talk about, and those were conditional recommendations. Uh, and I want you, our listeners, to stay tuned to part two of this podcast when we'll discuss those three conditional recommendations. So I want to thank our listeners for listening to today's Out of the Blue podcast. And to listen to more Out of the Blue podcasts, you can find them archived in reverse chronological order at atsjournals.org or subscribe to them via iTunes by searching for American Thoracic Society or Out of the Blue. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, and thank you for listening you